Hello everyone, I'm Ray Johnston and welcome to your monthly Indigenous STEM special for Take It Black, where you can stay up to date with all the latest happenings in science, technology, engineering and maths. It's also a place where we look at the intersection of traditional knowledge and modern science and speak to people working in this space to find out what they're up to. First, here's some tech news. Take it black. A partnership between CSIRO, Australia's National Science Agency, and AFAC, the National Council for Fire and Emergency Services, has resulted in the development of Spark Operational, a cutting-edge bushfire simulation tool based on CSIRO's Spark Fire Prediction Platform. I spoke with Dr Mahesh Prakash, Senior Principal Research Scientist at CSIRO's Data61, and asked him to describe to me what this tool does exactly. What the tool does is it actually does a forward prediction of the spread of a bushfire. So, you know, at a given point in time, you need to tell the tool where the bushfire is at that particular instant in time. And then it uses that as a starting point to predict where it might be in the next 8 to 10 hours using a range of inputs, the three key ones being weather. The second one is information about where the fire was in the initial instance where you're starting the fire, and that comes from a satellite data set. And the third one is the local vegetation and the fuel layer. And why is a tool or an app like this needed? Yeah, so one of the key challenges that firefighters face is getting an understanding of which fire to tackle when there is a bushfire and, you know, how much resourcing is needed when they are actually dealing with it and also, you know, where to provide resourcing. So given that the resourcing is limited, especially when you have fairly significant bushfire season, such a tool provides agencies with an ability to make some forward predictions on, you know, how to actually use limited resourcing that's available to them. The last year has changed the way we work with a mix of remote, hybrid and co-working spaces replacing the traditional office. I spoke with Kerri-Ann Smith, head of small and medium business for Zoom, about one of the most fascinating updates to their platform, air quality monitoring. And if this means we will be able to detect coronavirus particles in our meeting rooms. It can monitor CO2 levels, it can monitor humidity, it can monitor temperature, and then something called VOC, which is volatile organic compounds. So the way that I think about that is like aerosols. So it'll almost know if you're wearing too much perfume, for example. But we know that because we know how COVID thrives in particular environments, the room gets too warm or too humid, or it drops in temperature, we'll be able to see that in real time. And then, again, that IT administrator will be able to come in and change and monitor and control the environment in that room to keep people as safe as possible. So on to your question about COVID. Unfortunately, at the moment, it does not detect COVID, but we make improvements all the time, so you never know. Our engineers are incredibly intelligent and clever, and they've come up with all of this. So who knows what they'll come up with in the future. Returning for the second year, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander artists, writers, creators and podcasters are encouraged to apply for Spotify's Sound Up Accelerator program, 
a five-day podcasting workshop to be held in Sydney from May 11 to 15. Applicants don't have to have any previous podcasting experience to apply, just something to say, a passion for the medium and an eagerness to bring a podcast idea to life. You'll learn about the art of podcasting, receive mentoring and practical experience and meet with podcasting and radio greats. At the end of the week, three finalists will be awarded a cash grant and everyone who participates will be given equipment and software to produce their podcasts. If you're keen, you can apply for this year's Sound Up program by heading to Spotify.com. Take it black. There are only seven marine turtle species on the planet, and six of them are threatened due to threats from humans, climate change and predators. In some parts of Western Cape York in far north Queensland, Changes to the ecosystem have meant more feral pigs who dig up and eat all of the existing turtle nest eggs. In some years, rangers have recorded no hatchlings at all. Baiting the pigs can save 90% of the turtle nests, but here are three big challenges for rangers. Accessing these remote beaches, knowing where to bait and when. And it can take significant amounts of time. So, a new artificial intelligence by the CSIRO, APN Cape York Indigenous Rangers and Microsoft is speeding up turtle nest monitoring, giving Indigenous Rangers the best chance of protecting nests, controlling predators and increasing the likelihood of hawksbill, flatback and olive ridley turtle hatchlings surviving. I spoke with CSIRO research scientist Dr Justin Perry and Microsoft's Chief Technology Officer, Lee Hicken, about the program. And I started by asking what the technology actually does. The technology has come at the end of uh, a really long relationship with people on the west coast of Cape York, with people. And I've just actually come back from Aracoon, working with the rangers up there. So the project started back in 2009, actually, when we had identified a problem. There had been monitoring on a beach west coast of about 40 kilometres of beach on the west coast of Cape York. And the people who were doing that monitoring had recorded 100% depredation of turtle nests for olive ridley and flatback turtles. So that meant there was not a single baby turtle making it into the ocean. We don't know how long that had been going on for. They're very, very remote beaches, so it's not like people go out there and look so we knew that there was a problem. We knew that there was feral pigs predating on um, on turtles, but no one had gone out and measured and said, you know, I think this is a real problem. It's the one of the, it, it is the best rookery for olive ridleys in Australia. And it's a critically important nesting ground for olive ridleys globally. So th- this has only just recently been discovered. And so when we, when, when we were out there, I was doing other work out there and I met the guys on the beach in 2013. And we're saying, well, how's it going? You, you, you know, you're doing a lot of feral pig control. You're monitoring these turtles. Um, you know, are we seeing any results? And the guys go, no, it's still 100% every year. So we were working with the traditional owners at the time to do community consultations on the impacts of feral pigs on wetlands. And so we just started talking about impacts on turtles. And that's when Upper Nuncton, who we we're working with, decided to take on that project. So the traditional owners put it as a priority to to stop that predation. And then we changed the entire way that we were doing that work. So we instead of having, we had external people coming in to shoot 
or that that's what the, the process was, was shooting feral pigs. And there was an assumption that that was going to protect the turtles. And then once people started measuring it, so actually that's not, the, the, the assumption's not correct. So that wasn't actually having an effect. We changed the way that that was happening. We, we put monitoring back into the hands of the rangers, the Indigenous rangers. We developed up new technology, so app, iPad applications, so that people could actually collect that data really robustly. And then we realised that there was only a handful of feral pigs, not the thousands that were being shot out in the, in, you know, across the floodplains. There was only a handful of feral pigs that were actually doing all the damage. So we, put, we pushed that effort back down onto the beach, focused on that, and we had real success. So we went from 100% predation in one year to 0% the following year once we targeted it. So it was a huge success. But what we realised after that was that was a really, really intense job. That was, that was someone being employed to be on the beach every single day. There was a group of nine rangers that spent most of their time doing monitoring between July and November. So that's an enormous amount of resource being put into protecting those turtles. Now it worked, but but what we what we came up with was that we need to start leveraging technology so that there's less monitoring. You know, we still need the data, so we want the data, but we want to have less monitoring and more management. That's how we can sustainably protect these turtles into the future. It's okay when you've got research funding. We had funding from the National Environmental Science Program to support the rangers, but once that funding finished and all the scientists disappear, there still has to be a sustainable way for that to go forward. So that's when we decided that we needed to start thinking about different ways of doing that monitoring. And back in 2017, we started mucking around with, can we strap a camera to the bottom of a helicopter and, and fly 100 kilometres of beach rather than 50 and see whether or not we could actually um, detect the turtles and the predation events using that, that imagery. Now, the problem with that is that, we, firstly, we were just, you know, I think I had a paint stick with a camera hanging out the side of the helicopter. And when you try and do that for 100 kilometres, it gets really, really hard. So we ended up then making that into a formalised thing, CASA-approved rig that's not, not expensive, so something that you can attach easily, and then an off-the-shelf camera. It's just like a normal action cam, a GoPro or a Garmin Verb or something like that, people that use skiing and things. So we ended up setting that rig up and then we had it really, really nice photos collected. Every half a second we took a photo across that 100 kilometres beach and each of those photos had a latitude and a longitude associated with it. So we had a really nice data set, but unfortunately we had 40,000 photos that someone had to go through and look for one run. <laughs> so we did that five times, so we had repeat visits. So can you imagine the amount of photographs that had to... So I was saying to the guys yesterday... I had three interns for six weeks going through those photos, laboriously going, oh, yes, that one doesn't have turtle tracks. That one has pig tracks. There was an enormous amount of work. And that, that's when we actually approached Microsoft and said, can we leverage the power of AI to then simplify and automate that process? If we can do that, it will be a real, really useful management tool. And I might hand over to Lee to talk about sure. the tech. Yeah, thank, thanks, Justin. I love the way you tell that story, man. I just think it's so, it's so, um, it's just amazing what you guys do up there in the in the field. But yeah, so so Ray, like Justin said, I mean, you've got all of this data now. But the real thing, you've challenge, you've got you've got people like Justin and the Rangers who who know the land and are scientists and want to solve the problem, and their time is completely consumed 
with just trying to collate all the information to understand what the situation is. So you end up in a situation, even with all of the imagery, you're sort of solving the problem a month or time after it's actually happened. And the information is no good to you then because the, you know, the predations occurred and the, the turtles have been taken. So the, what, what we try and do, and, and this is all building on work we actually did with Justin and Syro last year, I think it was, in, or 2019 even, on a piece of work called Healthy Country, where we looked at how does AI as a tool set just accelerate the kinds of work that needs to get done on, on country. So in this case, it's looking at images and then understanding what's in that image. And we did it before for wetlands and magpie geese. And in this case, it's looking at these 40,000 images and very quickly determining out of the 40,000, which ones actually have information we care about. So we look at the image and we figure out what's you know, land and what's water. And then we look at on the land, can we see that looks like a turtle track, that looks like feral pigs, that looks like the damage caused by feral pigs. And you start to pick these bits of information out really, really quickly. And then the system just presents back to the scientists, okay, go there, pinpoint your time to that spot there because we see turtle tracks. And because you've got latitude and longs and also time, what you start to see is the, you see the event occurring in real time, so to speak. You see turtle tracks appearing and you know then that the, you can go in and manage that situation. So the AI system and the technology means we can look through massive amount of information very, very quickly. We don't give the scientists kind of go do this. We give the scientists the information and the rangers on land, on country to go have the information to go do their job best. Because the, the really important thing here and, and, and where the traditional owners and Justin and CSIRO come into this is that technology just forms one piece of the puzzle. The technology makes it easier to do the science. The scientists have access to better information, which means they can work more closely with the traditional owners who understand what needs to be done. So you kind of get that perfect sort of you know, collection of indigenous knowledge that tells you this is these are the markers, these are the things to look for, science that can help you understand the prediction points, and then the data that just makes it happen much quicker. And so where we go to is we capture more and more data, more and more information, and that helps us get more accurate. You know, with AI, it's more data leads to more accuracy. And then what we do, we take all of that information that we've built with Justin and with the traditional owners, and we make it available for more science and more indigenous communities. So we actually publish all of this open source so that other communities can build on the work that they're doing and can start to kind of look at how, did we, how do we do other native population managements or how do we do other uh, you know, uh, species management across Australia, or across the world. I think that's just in where you kind of think about where the impact of this kind of science goes, yeah? Yeah, most definitely. It's it's really, from my perspective, I used to be a ranger back, back in, you know, the, the late 90s and it, I know how laborious this work is, and when, also when he was ten. When he was ten, right? <laughs> yeah, I was young then. Um, but yeah, the the um, it was really laborious work, and it, and you, and also the monitoring is a means to an end. Often it becomes the, the the primary focus because it's so hard to do. And so what we needed, what you need as a land manager, is really good information. But you need it that week. It's that's the scale at which land managers work. There are long-term plans and there's there's global plans, but at, when it really comes down to it, conservation is done at that time by people on the ground and you actually have to do something. You have to protect a nest, you have to um, do some feral animal control, light a fire, whatever that is, it's a physical action um, and, and, the, and you often are doing it under difficult circumstances with limited resources. So any of this information that you can get helps you to this focus down on where you to put those limited resources so you're not just sort of scratching the surface, you're actually having a, an impact. 
And, and that's what I really like about this project is that we said, let's solve this at a place. And if we can do it, we know it's useful. That's where scaling can occur, not scale right at, right at the start, but actually say, here's something that we've done and it works. Now, you know, we can build on that now rather mm -hmm. than, rather than building something and letting it, letting people try and find out how to use it. I think as well for, for me, Ray, when I hear Justin talk about this a lot, you know, the, the core of it is we started the journey, not with a, here's some technology, what can we do, but with a, talking to the traditional owners, talking to the land managers, the rangers, and going, what are the things that you're dealing with? What are the problems that you deal with day in, day out on the country, not, you know, on the real ground? And then by doing it and bringing technology in, because we've just done this, as a con it's consultative the entire way through. It's not, you know, Microsoft telling you technology of Syra coming in with science. It's, it's such a consultative effort. To me, it's just amazing how quickly the rangers just accept and adopt and then really take on board the technology. They they want to use this stuff because it makes their ability to continue the traditions and the land management that they've known for years, it lets them do it better or it lets them do it you know, in, in a way that uh, really blends the two together with, with sort of technology and, and traditional methods. But that, that to me is kind of the, the light bulb moment with solutions like this. Well, I was talking to the guys from APN last night. We went out for dinner and they were saying that the thing that they really like about these relationships and, the, and it's growing now is that often Indigenous people in remote areas are the last people to, to, mm -hmm. to get technology. Here we're actually, they're actually um, instrumental in developing technology that goes back out to the other side. And so, so it, we're, they're building useful technology that's coming back out in partnership with us and, and Microsoft Whereas often it's sort of at the last minute, someone will dump some technology back into community. So I really liked that because I thought that's, we're sort of switching it around now to, to build it from the ground up. I can tell that you're both extremely passionate about this project. It's really beautiful to see. And obviously you've been working on it for a really long time. So what does come next? Do you continue to work you know, with these same ranges on this project or do you just kind of go, Hey, here's the technology. We're moving on to the next area now. What what happens now? Yeah, we well, this is the first. Like we've just literally just finished building this solution. So so we've got a um, and that's what I've been up in Erica and talking to the rangers about next is how do we actually put this into an operational context? And so I'll be definitely working with those rangers for at least the next three years. Um, it's been a long term collaboration. I've been hanging out with those guys since two thousand and nine. So I, I don't think it's going to end soon. We've got lots and lots of stuff to do. So what we're, what my focus will be in is is really building that solution out so that it becomes a, a super useful management tool. And then this dry season, we were talking last night, uh, the last three days with the rangers, is say, how would we actually do this so it's part of your work program? That's when we'll know we've actually truly been successful is that when we're not there, people still use it. That's That's actually my litmus test for success. Mm. is that it becomes operational. It's not it, It's not a supported thing. It's something that people use as their in their daily lives. So building on that, uh, Ray, so last year, we, Microsoft, signed a strategic agreement with CSIRO to continue to partner on sustainable or sustainable technology. So where can technology have an impact on long-term biodiversity, water, ecology, sustainable uses? So we're working with them on plastics. We're working on, on the as, um, sort of biodiversity management of ecology water usage, a whole bunch of projects. So we'll continue to do that, but this actually is also out of a, a piece of work that we, we fired up two or three years ago called AI for Earth. 
And the AI for Earth program to date, we've, we've done about over 700 grants around the world. We've sort of invested 10 million plus in those grants. But the purpose of it is, is find opportunities like this where people like Justin are doing something, the work they're doing now. How do we take that and then amplify it around the world? So the whole purpose of an AI for Earth program is exactly that. Where do we, our technology needs to have purpose, needs to have meaning. Um, you know, AI isn't just about kind of making businesses operate better. It's actually about changing the way that we work or operate on the planet. That's the bit that I'm passionate about. And the AI for Earth program is that. So we'll take what Justin's done. We'll publish that on a platform called GitHub, which I'm sure you know about from, from your world and make it available. In fact, that, make, that happens next year, next week. Sorry, we're publishing this work. And it's all in the intention of sharing, you know, the collaborative community that we try and build around environmental science globally is where we get the momentum and the impact. So Justin continues to work locally here to have the massive impact they have. And then we hope to amplify that at a global level. So if there are communities that you know, have problems with you know, feral animals and, and see this and realise that they could benefit from having something similar in their area, where do they go? Who do they talk to? How, how can they get help? Well, I mean, from our point of view, of course, because this is all on, on GitHub and we have a whole program of work around AI for Earth where you can get the stories, you can meet the scientists, you can get the resources, so you can download the code, you know, whether it's a, a bit of Python code they've used to build the, the model or the data sets that are being published. So we're very much pushing, we have a concept called the planetary computer, which is about publishing these data sets so they can go grab them there. So they get it all from there. But in that, you'll find when you look at these GitHub repositories of this data, it's not just a technical code base. There's also a whole bunch of writing on there from people like Justin and our, our engineers that talk about, say, uh, Indigenous community connections. So how do you do this but being respectful and engaging in Indigenous communities? How do you build ethics and responsibility into that? Understanding, I mean, the last one we did, for example, has a complete breakdown of the six-season model that they were using in Kakadu to understand land management that's really valuable when you think about how you do land management data collation and, and labelling. So it's really more than that. It, it is a repository of that. And I think, you know, people like Justin then become part of a science community connected through those tools that builds these connections. We, we've already actually seen this with the work we did last time on Healthy Country with the magpie geese led to some work that's going on now with New South Wales, parks and wildlife and their management of land. We've done some continued work up in Darwin on the waterways. So even though we're, we're seeing that immediate sort of acceleration effect just here in our own country, but then, you know, hopefully the vision is to expand this out to, you know, all parts of the world where they have indigenous populations uh, of animals that we're trying to manage or communities we want to engage with. And we've, we've been working on that from the from the perspective, the practical side of that is how do people actually use this software? And there's there's a couple of ways to go about it. At the moment, people can, can jump in there and clone the Git repository if they've got an IT person that can do that for them. So at the moment, that's, the, that's probably a bottleneck for a lot of organisations. So... I work also with an organisation called um, NAILSMA, Northern Australian Indigenous Land and Sea Management Alliance, and the alliance is the important bit. It's just a group of people. We just work with people that are doing things. And so through with that hat on, then, then when people say, oh, that's pretty cool, can I do that too? Then I'll say, yes, you can. But it currently does rely on someone that can actually build that solution out for their particular challenge. Mm. But at this stage... The fact that those pipelines are built are the important thing because that means that that usually with these each organization would have to develop a system themselves or buy yep. one in so so here we've now done that hard work we've released all of that hard work now to the world for free and then it's really about then how do you um, modify it for your own challenge 
that's it. Sorry, Brian, probably another question, but it would be remiss of me not to mention the fact that to Justin's point about that skilling and that enablement, because it is, it's a new set of skills for a lot of environmental yeah. scientists. We actually have a guy we've just, we've, we've hired a, a, a dedicated head, a guy called Steve uh, Van Bodegraven that Justin works with, who's an environmental scientist. And his job at Microsoft is to simply go and work with science communities and technology uh, and environmental scientists on how to use this technology. So we want to be part of that journey of, of kind of shifting the needle towards technology as a science enabler. Sorry, Ray. No, no, that's okay. I was just going to say this is probably the most enthusiastic, comprehensive interview I've conducted in a very long time. <laughs> and I just, just wanted to thank you both for all of your knowledge and your passion and your involvement in this project. And before we do run out of time, is there anything else that you would like people to know about what it is that you've created here and, and what you've been working on? The only thing I would add, and I know we've talked a bit about it, but just the importance of the partnership and, and the fact that this isn't one entity doing this, and it's not CSIRO, it's not Microsoft, it's not just NES, APN, it requires, you know, the, the adage of it requires a village to raise a child, and it's exactly that kind of situation here. You, if, we, if any one of us had tried to do this independently, it would never have worked and it would have failed abysmally, but collectively it creates something that just is you know, frankly, a little bit magical when you think about the impact of it and what it means when you see Justin holding these little tiny turtles, and that's the impact is that, and he puts them in the sea afterwards. But you know, that they—that's the outcome. So I think that's probably the only thing I would say. Yeah, and and I would add to that just to say that I think that the, the thing that excites me and why I'm so passionate about it is because a, a lot of this work gets outsourced in remote areas, and I really want to have technology using technology for good is great. And we've thought deeply about ethics and we've also yeah. thought deeply about who owns the data, where does it go? How can it be reused? These are all really, really critical questions globally as these technologies roll out for all different types of reasons. AI often has a negative press because it does yeah. have the opportunity to be misused. And so the thing I really love about this whole process is for the last two years, We've been, you know, um, neck deep in ethics, and that's that's really it's something that I haven't had to think about before because usually, it's it's restricted. Like what you do on country is restricted to what you do on country. But as we then shift into this new world, we do have to think really carefully. What happens if there's autonomous drones flying across country? Who wants that? Do people want it? And that's why I'm really glad we're working directly with people on the ground rather than creating these wonderful solutions, but then you work out that you've actually, perversely, <laughs> you've created something that people don't like, or you, or, yeah. or, you know, you, you remove the, the sovereignty of data and, and the use of that data. Really so that's, that's, that's the really important point for me, is that we, we're not, we, we have thought deeply about that, and, we, and we, we all walk the walk on that side of things. Take it black. That was Dr. Justin Perry and Lee Hicken. If you enjoyed this episode, please let us know, give us a rating, share it with your friends, subscribe. And if there's anything STEM related you'd like to know more about, hit me up on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook or LinkedIn at Ray Johnston and I'll give you all the info in the next STEM episode. Until then, don't forget to take it black. Always love, always love